welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 66. My name's Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. This week, I've been resting and relaxing since it's been Christmas, so spending time with the family where possible. However, that has given me some time to reflect back on the year in games in 2020. So in this episode, I'm going to be running down my personal top 10 games of 2020 and looking back on the year we've had in games. So as always, it's a jam-packed show, so let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you're well and you're having a good week. Now, I'm good this week and Christmas has come and gone and I hope you got everything you wanted this year. Maybe there was a new console or a new graphics card under the tree and I hope you managed to get a little something related to gaming, whether it was a new console, a game, a new controller or an art book. One of the best gifts I got in recent years was the Hyrule Historia book absolutely love that gift and if you haven't heard about it that is a kind of history of the legend of zelda series and obviously we've got a big year coming up in 2021 with the legend of zelda as it's the 35th anniversary so there's gonna be loads of great zelda content coming up christmas this year was a little bit different me and my fiance spent it here in london rather than traveling to visit family so here in the uk the coronavirus got much worse over the past few weeks so much of the country is in the highest tier of lockdown meaning traveling and mixing with other households wasn't really an option this year so much like the rest of 2020 we spent a lot of it on zoom and whatsapp and speaking to family I hope you had a great holiday whether you celebrate christmas or not and we've got a new year coming up and 2021 has to be better than 2020 right i mean this year it was a strange one but hopefully next year is going to be much better. On the plus side, this year we did have the new consoles and a whole swathe of great games released, whether they were AAA or indie titles. We've been totally spoiled this year for games, so without further ado, I'd like to jump into my top 10 games of 2020. So first on the list today, at number 10, we've got Teardown. So Teardown is a strangely exhilarating game. You can smash break and bust through walls in an environment that's similar looking to Minecraft, but with updated textures and environments. It's first person and you've got a few tools like a hammer, a spray can and a fire extinguisher to cause mayhem and ultimately escape from each level with the goods on a pre-planned optimum path. At first it feels like a really good well polished tech demo, but the game has two central modes. So you've got a general sandbox that you can simply play around with the physics, smashing, jumping and literally tearing down all manner of buildings and environments. There's also the campaign mode where you're a thief, you're down on your luck and you're needing some extra cash for the family. The main objective in each level is to scout out the area and find the valuables and plan the fastest route to obtain all the valuables before making it off in your getaway car. You're going to have to be fast though, because once you trigger that security system by touching one of the items you're required to collect, you generally have 60 seconds to speed through the rest of the level, pick up what you need before making a getaway. Optimum paths can be found by smashing walls with trucks, banging holes in the side of houses with your hammer, or driving vans into lakes to provide makeshift bridges. Once you set up your path, then it's a race against the clock to get out of there. So tasks, they do vary. In the opening hours of the game, you're handheld through various tools and mechanics, and when you're dropped into a level for the first time, it's all about finding the location of the valuables, or perhaps you have to knock down something completely. Keep an eye on the objectives and the fail states though, as sometimes you trigger security systems that are gonna make you fail fast. So I picked up a blowtorch after the first mission, used it straight away on my second mission, only to find that fire would set off the security alarm. So that was a bit of a no-no. 
The exciting part of this game though is the race to the exit. So you're going to be scouting out the locations for the items and then it's about planning your optimum route through the existing building. You may have to run up some stairs, so perhaps busting a hole in the wall or clearing a building completely off the map is going to help you gain that extra five seconds that you need to get to your van to make a clean getaway. And if you don't make it before the timer runs out, then the cops show up in their helicopter and you have to start all over again. And you're likely going to spend plenty of time surveying and preparing and maybe even practicing your runs. Some of the solutions can be really surprising. There was one job I was on where I had to get a couple of saves out of a building and into the sea, so I had to destroy some ownership records on a pier to make room for my friend's yacht, as you do. I casually went up to the building and smashed a hole in the wall rather than going through the door, and then I went up the stairs to only find I couldn't move the safe with just my hands or my tools. No worries though, I ran outside to find a truck, drove it through the building and found the safe dropped neatly into the top of the truck just as I ran into the house. Then I drove that off the pier and into the sea. Job done. So the environment physics feel really, really good, and it's one of the big selling points of this game. So close up, there's not too much fidelity, as it gives off a similar feeling to the world of Minecraft, although that is kind of selling it a little bit short, as there are much better textures here. So Minecraft is the obvious comparison, as everyone can relate to that blocky world in a first-person 3D space. You can knock down houses brick by brick with your hammer, or burn places down with a blowtorch, and the fire simulation feels really, really good and realistic. Again, when I was on that pier early on in the game, I had to destroy a whole building and at this time I didn't know about the fire alarm warning. So I went about my business and set the whole place on fire. And much to my surprise and horror, the fire spread easily from one building to another. Sometimes the physics can feel a little bit weird. We knock down the perimeter of a building and the thing is kind of still standing on a tiny little sliver of structure. However, there's nothing more satisfying than bulldozing a warehouse and especially creating an optimum route for a whole bunch of warehouses to help me get that clean escape route. There's much more of a story to this game than I was expecting, so you've got your sandbox mode which is great for playing around. However, after a few minutes smashing and understanding how I can interact with the environment, I needed an objective to sink my teeth into. The campaign mode is great, building tension with the heist mode, and then the tense music during the planning phase, building up to dramatic music during the 60 second getaway sequence. You'll likely fail a few times, which creates an element of time trial against yourself, and it's really satisfying to gather everything, reach that goal, with only a few seconds remaining. So Teardown provides you with plenty of tools to aid your destructive habits. So when you start out, you've got a hammer, an extinguisher, and a spray can. And you can also get into cars, trucks, bulldozers, and boats too. So each vehicle has a health bar, so smash something too much, and it's simply going to be useless to you. I did notice the water effects look really, really good in this game. Initially, on first inspection, you could write this off for having simplistic graphics, but look closer, and you're going to see something refined and in high fidelity. So I am really enjoying my time with Teardown. I was hyped when I first saw it. Now I've played the game, which is currently available in early access on Steam. I'm even more excited and I can't wait to get back to it. It's something that you can quickly dip in and out of with the sandbox mode, or you can have extended play sessions through the campaign. This might be good after a tough day at work, go into Teardown, smash up a few things and help relax like a 21st century squeeze ball. So next up at number nine, we've got Pendragon. And Pendragon is a narrative tactics game from Inkle Studios, creators of 80 Days and Heaven's Vault. And this time, they're taking on the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. It's great fun, sometimes touching, sometimes heartbreaking in this pop-up style adventure through history. It's an entertaining genre mashup between turn-based tactics and narrative adventure. 
All roads point to Camelan and King Arthur facing off against his arch-rival, Sir Modred, but each time you play through, you're going to be making narrative choices which shape the story that unfolds before you. So this plays into the strengths of Inkle Studios as they've built up a fine reputation on wonderful narrative adventure games like 80 Days and Heaven's Vault, as I mentioned before. As for the other mechanics in the game, this is more of a departure for Inkle, as the combat comes in the form of a tactics-based game. So on the world map, there's a number of locations that you'll visit along the way, and each one is a board that you have to safely navigate your way across one or two spaces at a time. Standing in your way would be enemies like wolves and spiders and Sir Modric's knights, or even wandering townsfolk. Your character or party then becomes like a piece on a chessboard. At the start of the game, there's a nice tutorial taking you through the basics like moving and attacking and complementary mechanics like the morale meter and rations. So if you get in a real sticky situation, you can flee, but beware, this doesn't always work and you could be caught in a deadly situation that you can't get out of. As you make progress through the game, you pick up new skills and abilities like being able to push forward and gain additional square or powerful skills like skewering two opponents in a line. So the tactics element have been boiled down to the bare essentials, which makes the game very accessible. But that doesn't mean the game is easy by any stretch. You have to keep an eye on what your enemies are doing, plus plan a few moves ahead. So don't just go charging into battles your playthrough could end very quickly. You know, one false move and you're dead. So do be careful. The battle mechanics, they're really easy to understand, and if you're well versed in tactics games, then you'll likely take to this like a duck to water. Combined with attacks and movement, you've got the morale meter. So if you play defensively, then your morale is going to go down. And it's wise to keep morale high, as it will allow unlocking abilities in battle. So try to balance the morale and keep it on the higher side. You don't want to be backed into a corner with low morale, only to find a move that could save you is disabled due to low morale. Believe me, I know, and it's super frustrating. Replayability definitely comes to mind when I think about Pendragon, so as you unlock new characters along the way, you'll want to play through time and time again from the start with these new faces to hear their point of view and their stories. So Lancelot, he proclaims his love for Guinevere and hopes Arthur will find it in himself to forgive him, whereas Guinevere longs to see her king once again. And a single playthrough of the game is relatively short, perhaps an hour or so, but you won't uncover all of the details in a single playthrough. Each time you start a new playthrough, the board is randomised, so you're going to get something new each time you play, whether you be unlocking a new playable character, or finding one of the many hidden secrets within Pendragon. Finding out what Merlin's up to, as well as the legendary sword, Excalibur, was high on my to-do list, and there's plenty of great secrets in the game, and they'll keep you coming back time after time. There's something about this combination of tactics and replayable story adventure I really enjoyed with Pendragon. Now, I vaguely knew the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, but uncovering it through a series of different characters' perspectives is super fun, and the gameplay mechanics are enjoyable too. I did find the game quite tricky, and I'm not a huge tactics game player by any means, so experts in the field may have an easier time of it than I did. There are three main beats to the game, so you've got tactics, narrative adventure and Arthurian lore. And if you're interested in any of these or a combination, I definitely recommend Pendragon for you. The game is charming, with beautiful pop-up book style artwork and excellent music, so it's a pleasure to play through again and again, and you'll definitely want to as the characters are lovable and interesting. Successful playthroughs unlock higher difficulties, so the more you play the better you get, and you have the option of ramping up the challenge. And the overall visual design, from the way the narrative unfolds to the clean UI, clearly explaining what's going on, is a massive strength of the game. So if you haven't heard of Pendragon, definitely worth picking up. It's really, really good fun. Next in at number 8, it's Astro's Playroom. 
Astro's Playroom, it was a launch game that come bundled with a PS5. It's a cute and fun journey through the PlayStation history, plus it demonstrates the capabilities of the PlayStation 5 DualSense controller absolutely perfectly. There's a feel-good factor here, so much so that you might be fooled into thinking Nintendo made this game, and Astro had previously been on adventures in PSVR. However, this time it's his job to show off what the PS5 can do. Astro previously starred in Astrobot Rescue Mission, and at first there were eyebrows raised as to why Astro was coming out of VR and back onto the flat screen. Fears can be put away, because this is a fantastic platformer in its own right, with personality, graphics, audio, and a whole load of nostalgia too. So Sony's history is plastered all over Astro's Playroom, and it feels like a massive celebration of the last 25 years of Sony's achievements since the original PlayStation, and, and Astro even plays with a little PS Vita if you leave him for a few minutes, and the worlds themselves are styled on PlayStation generations. There's a bunch of PlayStation collectibles to be found in each world, so if you've grown up through the PlayStation generations, there's plenty here for you. If you're a younger player and this is your first experience, then you're likely going to be dazzled by the graphics and the new controller, but there's plenty in here for older audiences too. The game in essence is a showcase of the PlayStation DualSense controller, so as you platform and navigate through different areas of the game, you're going to feel that right in your hands. Whether you're walking around on sand or grass or skiing on ice, you're definitely going to feel it. As well as the haptic feedback, there's also the triggers to contend with related to the DualSense. So Team Asobi, they've done a great job with the controller. It's probably worth noting at this point though, this is a team who create hardware for Sony, so they've been directly involved with the design and build of the controller itself. So as well as creating amazing VR and platforming experiences, they're also a genius team when it comes to hardware. The DualSense is probably the differentiator that may decide purchases between the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X. So in the previous generation, there wasn't really much to split them, but this time we have the controller. Astro's Playroom is a great showcase for the PlayStation 5, and it's one of the best bundled games that comes with the system I've ever seen. It's heartwarming and a fun introduction to your brand new console generation. This one may have flown under the radar when other big hitters like Demon's Souls and Spider-Man Miles Morales they've been stealing the headlines, but this one is well worth your time and attention. You'll come for the DualSense demo, but Astro will more likely charm you into staying to hang out with him and his friends. Well, number seven, we got another platforming game, and it's Super Mario 3D All-Stars. So Super Mario 3D All-Stars, on the face of it, it's an absolutely wonderful collection. So 1997 Super Mario 64 revolutionised 3D platformers, then 2002 Super Mario Sunshine improved on many of Super Mario 64's mechanics, added the flood system, and in 2007 Super Mario Galaxy, well that is just simply a wonderful experience, and one of the best games of all time. Although for some reason, when brought together in this collection, it doesn't feel as good as it could be. But before I get into the potential improvements, let's have a look at the games themselves. So first of all, we got Super Mario 64, and it stays pretty much true to the original game, with some graphical upgrades. The game stays at its original aspect ratio, and runs at 30 frames per second, and it plays just like the original Super Mario 64 I remember. I remember I got this one as an import from Hong Kong back in the days before the internet was widely available, and I still remember playing it over and over as a teenager. Super Mario 64 still holds up pretty well, albeit with a few camera issues here and there, and that may even be true to its original form. The game is still as fun as it was back in the day, and the visuals look crisp, and there's that familiar music and open feel to the game which just takes me right back. It's incredible to think that Nintendo made the 3D platformer and executed it so well on their first try. 
to take Mario and transfer that feeling of movement and joy of exploration from 2D to 3D, even today this game either tops or is a mainstay of top 10 game lists of all time. Super Mario Sunshine is an interesting one to go back to. Arguably, of the games in this 3D collection, it's probably the weakest entry, but that's not to say it's a bad game at all. Just when you compare it to two of the greatest games of all time, the flaws are much more obvious. So Nintendo introduced the flood system into the game, allowing Mario to spray water, attack and move in new ways. And it's still a fun adventure, with many of the characters this time given voice lines, and there's a significant graphical upgrade over Super Mario 64. Gone are the polygons and the sharp edges, and this is much closer to the visuals of Super Mario that we know and love today. Super Mario Sunshine didn't manage to live up to the very high expectations set for it by Super Mario 64, but it's still a good entry in the overall history of Super Mario games. If you're coming to this fresh and have never experienced Super Mario Sunshine, then it's definitely well worth playing. Finally in the collection we've got Super Mario Galaxy, and this one is much more like it and perhaps one of the most ambitious Mario games in the series. This port onto the Nintendo Switch looks absolutely beautiful and has stood the test of time with it being a 13 year old game. Motion controls are mixed in with traditional controls and Mario is taken to a new level with the ability to explore the cosmos. Mario can travel around little planets and that sense of gravity, exploration and space is turned on its head. So Nintendo really innovated here and elevated Mario to a new level after the semi-lackluster showing of Super Mario Sunshine. The game is a joy to explore from start to finish, with Nintendo trying out new ideas all the way through. The gravity and Mario's traversal across the planets and moons is just something to behold. Super Mario Galaxy is the one I keep coming back to time and time again. Its story, graphics and music are all wonderful, and perhaps one of Nintendo's greatest achievements in their long history of making amazing video games. The only tricky thing with porting this to the Nintendo Switch is the motion controls, and this game was designed with the Wii Remote in mind, and you can use a combination here of motion controls and the Pro Controller, or in handheld mode using the touchscreen. This is a collection of some of the best 3D Mario games out there, with Super Mario 64, Super Mario Galaxy being near perfect games. Super Mario Sunshine is an interesting game worth playing, but if you've never experienced Mario before Super Mario Odyssey, then it's worth checking out this collection and understanding how we got to modern day Mario games. It would have been great for Nintendo to celebrate this collection a little more in-game, but for me, Super Mario Galaxy is worth the price tag alone. It's a great bonus to have the other two games there, even if they don't hold up quite as well as they do in my memory. Well, next up, we've got number six, and it's Streets of Rage 4. So Streets of Rage 4 is a handmade homage to the original series, much like other game series that have been brought back recently. So Nostalgia is doing really well right now, with other big 90s series doing well in 2020. So Streets of Rage 4 is quite unique as it tackles a style of game that's faded away almost completely in the AAA and indie space. The gameplay of Streets of Rage 4 stays largely the same as previous incarnations of the series, However, the graphics have had a complete overhaul by the developer Lizard Cube. They're the ones that took on another 90s classic with Wonder Boy, a game that Game Gear fans will remember for sure. The artwork is self-shaded, it's colourful, it looks like a comic book that you can control, and it really brings the action to life. There's an option to turn on the retro filter as well, allowing you to experience the updated game in full 16-bit glory, which, if you've got nostalgia for the 90s games, then I definitely recommend giving this a go. When you first start the game, you've got four characters to choose from. You've got Axel, Blaze, Cherry, and Floyd. So Axel is your all-rounder. Floyd is bigger and moves a little bit slower, whereas Blaze and Cherry are much more nimble. 
Each character has a standard punch or kick attack, holds and suplexes, as well as a special attack too. So be wary of the special attack as it's going to drain some energy. But once you build up enough energy, there's a super attack. There's some nice attacks which you can chain together and the damage numbers and combos are reflected on the screen, which is really, really nice. Attacks are certainly true to the original form of Streets of Rage. And this is both good and bad as it feels authentic. However, it can get a little bit button mashy and repetitive. The combo system is the saving grace of the battle system, with the ability to juggle enemies in the air, more so with some characters than others. Now, out of the original characters, I probably had the most fun with Cherry, as combos include a lunge with her jumping forward and pounding her opponents with a follow-up punch that sends a tingle down your spine. And the developer has definitely injected plenty of fun and feels into this game. There's some nice systems in the game to keep you entertained and coming back for more, including unlockable features such as characters, graphical styles and other game modes. There's a leaderboard and a grading system to let you know instantly how you did. There's a story mode which isn't too long, roughly in the region of a few hours. And once you finish the story, you unlock other game modes such as stage select, arcade, boss rush and a battle mode. Streets of Rage 4 can be played through in a single player mode, however the classic co-op mode is back, and this time there's online matchmaking allowing you to team up with other fans, and this is an absolutely great addition. Playing back in the day with another player on arcades was fun, and that was brought into the living room with console gaming, so this addition of online co-op play is great and also pretty straightforward and easy to jump into. Overall, Streets of Rage 4 is a nostalgic trip down memory lane. Scrolling beat-em-ups have almost disappeared completely from gaming, so this is a nice reminder of those times. You know, Whether it stands up on its own is another story against many other great titles that are vying for your time these days, but I had fun with it, and I played on Xbox Game Pass on PC as part of my monthly subscription on there. So for fans of this genre, this is most likely the best it's going to get on modern consoles, and a wonderful trip down memory lane. So next in, at number 5, it's Spider-Man Miles Morales. So this one is a follow-up extension of one of the best games of 2018. Insomniac have a new set of tech tools to play with to show off what they can do. So this is a much more condensed experience than Spidey's previous outing, but it's big on heart and a great demonstration of the power of PS5. The game is set about a year after the first game and we're given a quick catch-up at the start if you either missed out on the game or happen to forget the events of the original. Miles and Peter meet up in the opening mission of the game to take on Rhino after a reckless Miles tries to help, but unfortunately frees a bunch of enemies and Rhino himself, leaving Peter badly beaten and bruised. But Miles discovers some powerful new abilities in his battles with Rhino and leaves him out cold and eventually saves the day. And then Peter, he's called away with MJ and the Bugle on assignment, leaving Miles as the only New York Spider-Man for a few weeks, leaving Miles a little bit shell-shocked but excited at the news. So swinging around the city feels fantastic as it always has done, swinging from skyscraper to skyscraper, running up the face of a tall building and leaping off a mile high has never felt more fun. This is quite literal too with the haptic feedback and the graphical improvements. So Miles adds his own personality to the traversal, feeling slightly awkward and squirming all over the place, making him feel not quite as fluid as Peter, but unique to Miles himself. There's an element to Miles and the way he moves, suggesting he should be wearing some kind of L-plate, and in his own way, he's really, really charming. 
This is a game where travelling from A to B is great, and some recent games like Red Dead Redemption 2, sometimes you just want to skip to the destination, but Spider-Man rewrites the rules on in-game travel and makes it a joy every time. And this is further enhanced by the power of the PS5 in either of the graphical modes, there's a ray tracing 4K capabilities, or you can play in 60fps, and both look and feel great. You can feel the webbing hook into the buildings and sometimes when you rush and dive off a building your heart goes into your mouth and, and sometimes I genuinely felt a little twinge of vertigo as I dove off a huge building only to shoot out some webbing at the last minute to fly through the Big Apple and then webs it forward to land gracefully on some traffic lights. This has to be a new benchmark for traversal in games. New York has been given a lick of paint too, new missions and the whole place breathes like a bustling city should. As you travel around, you pop in and out of missions with ease, and the power of the PlayStation 5 once again comes into focus as the loading times are barely even there. Able to load massive areas with incredible detail in seconds, combat feels really good, and it shouldn't come as a surprise to the fans of the original game, as the game flows from combat to exploration in a very seamless manner. In one minute you're going to be on top of the building scouting out the zones, next minute you're going to be web shooting and duffing up a bunch of bad guys, or onto the latest big bad boss. Spider-Man Mars Morales builds on the first game in so many ways, and given the success of the first instalment, Insomniac's job here was to tweak and add small additions. Mars works great as the lead from a narrative point of view, but also from a gameplay perspective too. Miles' mum, Rio Morales, plays an important role in the game, and also Gankly, Miles' close connections play a big part here, and it leaves you with a warm, fuzzy feeling once you've played it. Can't say too much about the extended cast without giving too much away, but there's definitely some fantastic characters in here. Gameplay and action-wise, this is very high up there on the charts. However, the story does run out of steam a little bit, perhaps demonstrating it's more of an expansion rather than a fully-fledged sequel. And no doubt, Insomniac will be back with a bigger, better, more immersive Spider-Man sequel in the not-too-distant future. Overall, Spider-Man Mars Morales is a great expansion to 2018 Spider-Man, more than living up to the high expectations that that game set for itself, and in many ways, it succeeds. The combat is as enjoyable as ever, the traversal and the movement are as fluid and fun as you'd expect, and given it's 2020, I imagine it's been tough to make a game like this working from home, and I can't help but get excited for what Insomniac may have in store for us next, now knowing the capabilities of the PS5 and the talent that they have in their studio. All in all, it's a great PS5 game that respects your time and doesn't outstay its welcome. Next up at number 4 is the Scandinavian story Roki, and Roki is a game full of magical creatures, adventure, but it's also about dealing with life's hardships too. Prepare yourself for a heartfelt tale of family, love and mystery as you explore frozen forests in this exquisite adventure from Polygon Treehouse. The game starts out with you as Tove, playing with her younger brother Lars, playing hide-and-seek amongst the snow-covered wilderness just outside their house. They're clearly having fun, but it's dinner time and Tove is hungry, so she does her very best to get her energy-filled Lars back to the house in one piece. Father is asleep by the fire and you've got to cook dinner, and the eggs are the only thing left in the cupboard. Clearly, the family's been through some tough times, as mother is nowhere to be seen, and Tove looks really tired. After a bedtime story, something big comes crawling out of the forest and steals away Tove's younger brother, and then it's time to find out who, or what, has come for them and restore some kind of normality to their lives. 
A rich history is weaved in the first hour of the game when you're introduced to a series of characters in the book, legends who once looked over and protected the forest. We're given a slight glimpse of the sad background of Tove and her family, all against the backdrop of beautiful music and graphics and draw you into the lore of the game world. It's all really inviting, like a comfy chair next to a roaring fireplace. And once you've made your escape from the initial encounter with this new dreamlike danger, the world just comes alive. Ravens, statues and the landscape itself bring a vibrance to your exploring. And there's trolls and all-seeing tree and secrets around every turn. Roki is a point-and-click adventure game and you're introduced to the mechanics very early on in your adventure by taking care of your little brother and making sure that dinner is on the table and there's enough firewood burning to keep father warm while he gently rocks to sleep in his chair. There's the classic gathering of items in your inventory and various combinations, but it feels smoother than other point-and-click adventure games I've played. Each item has its logical next step and I didn't feel the need to sweep the screen for something to interact with. This is helped by a great system where you can press a button or key to identify areas on the screen that you can interact with. It really helped with reducing that sometimes frustrating experience of other games in the genre. The central inventory system keeps things nice and simple, anywhere you can either combine items with one another or drag them onto the environment. The audio design of the game does a great job of positive reinforcement here when it comes to your inventory with a satisfying chime when you get something right, or when Tove scribbles something in a notebook. The puzzles found in Roki are never too obtuse as you work your way towards the goal. There's normally more than one mystery on the go at one time. There's a sense of innocence and positivity to the game that feels really rare. This is the story of a little girl trying to save her brother to do all she can to help the creatures that she meets along the way. The game is split into three chapters. In the second chapter, you get some handy hints from the tree of many, making the puzzles even less of an issue. There's also a really handy fast travel system here, but unfortunately that system doesn't last all the way through that roughly 10 hour adventure. The whole inventory system works really well together. Tove has a map of the local area as well as notes she takes along the way. There's loot to collect like bugs and scraps found on the floor, which she carefully adds to her notebook as loot. And you can also have badges to show off your achievements. The UI in the game is complimentary and just doesn't get in your way. The graphics and the audio complement each other well and the world is absolutely beautiful. The snow-covered trees and caves are nice glisten around every turn and the music offers a bright and breezy upbeat soundtrack to an otherwise sometimes sad and lonely adventure. This is a game where narrative takes centre stage and everything else complements it rather than adding obstruction. The controls and systems made gliding through the game a breeze which sets you up nicely for the heart-hitting story of folklore, family and love. The mystical fantasy that's weaved around Tove sometimes mirrors that of her family life, but to go into any more detail would be encroaching on spoiler territory. The biggest compliment I can give this game is you should play it. It's available on a number of platforms from PC, Mac and Nintendo Switch, and it's one of the most engrossing stories that I've played in some time. Roki is a game that will delight and surprise, and I recommend you giving it a try today. Well next up we've got number 3 and it's Destiny 2 Beyond Light and this one is a close game to my heart as if you watch any of my videos on YouTube you'll know that I cover Destiny 2 in a big way. But Bungie dropped their latest update to Destiny 2 called Beyond Light on November the 10th and it comes with a bunch of changes, streamlining and improvements to the overall player experience. So this is very much like more Destiny so if you're a fan of the franchise then you'll likely enjoy this expansion. However. 
It's not without its controversy, with sun setting and many old weapons being removed, plus the addition of Stasis, the new cosmic ice subclass, and our Guardian walking the tightrope between the light and the dark. First of all, we should start up with the campaign. So all of our gear has been brought up to the new base power level of 1050. And we start out on Europa, one of the frozen moons of Jupiter. A faction of the Fallen, led by Aramis, have set up camp here on Europa, and they're there in search of a new god, having been deserted by the Traveller many years ago. So Aramis is leading a ragtag bunch of Fallen, the pirate race in the Destiny universe, and promises to share stasis with them, a new icy darkness ability that they're going to use to punish any followers of the Traveller. Varix, a returning character from Destiny 1, sent a distress call out and we've answered along with an unlikely fire team of the Drifter, Eris Morn and the Exo Stranger, another returning character from Destiny 1. Drifter and Eris wield the light, but the Exo Stranger is a new addition with some very complex lore and backstory that's no doubt going to open up as the content unfolds throughout the year that we have ahead of us in Beyond Light. It's our job to help out Varix and help him rid Europa of Eremis and her evil influence. The campaign is fairly standard as Destiny campaigns go. We travel around the new and existing destinations, levelling up and beating a variety of bosses. There's a good amount of storytelling and exposition with the NPCs, and this feels like it's one of the best campaigns that we've had in Destiny since The Taken King and Forsaken. Shadowkeep last year did feel a little bit bare bones, however Bungie had just been through a split with Activision, who took away a considerable amount of development resources when they left. On a positive note, they left Bungie on their own to take Destiny in their own direction, and they're leaning much more into the MMO RPG elements of the game. Whereas before the game could be clearly labelled as a looter shooter, it's now much more of an action MMO. Anyway, back to the campaign. The boss fights throughout felt entertaining and the final battle was satisfying, so much like the other campaigns, we didn't really get too much of a build-up with Eremis, so beating her in the relative short campaign can feel a little bit hollow, as we didn't really know her that well. And at the end of the campaign, we finally got to wield our new stasis ability, so peppered throughout the campaign, we have opportunities to use stasis, but getting it for real is safe for the post-campaign. So once you finish the main campaign, there is a little bit of post-campaign to work through, but it's entertaining enough in its own right. We get to earn a new exotic stasis grenade launcher through one of the best missions in Destiny history, with our ghost doing an entertaining impression of Drifter, plus the exotic reward itself. So there's two post-campaign questlines too with Varix and the Exo Stranger, with Varix's post-campaign missions opening up an activity called Empire Hunts, which are repeatable activities where we face off against bosses from the campaign and give us access to the new Europa set of weapons. The post-campaign missions with the Exo Stranger allow us to go after fragments and aspects on new subclass customization suite of tools. Stasis is one of the main selling points of the DLC and we've been flirting with the darkness for some time now, but now we've got our first opportunity to wield the darkness in the form of Stasis. We only have one Stasis subclass at the moment, with more promised in the coming years, so we've already got two more DLCs planned. So the Witch Queen in 2021 and Lightfall in 2022, where we're likely to get more stasis subclass, so poison and earth abilities are currently being rumoured at the moment. But stasis itself is game-changing. It feels super powerful in PvE and pretty much game-breaking in PvP, which has reignited talks of splitting off the sandbox in PvE and PvP. Now, having one global system that caters for all game modes is very tough, Further highlighted only a week after launch, when Stasis was nerfed for the Warlock class, given its overpowered nature across all game modes. 
and the new aspects and fragment system is really good and the opportunity for new and exciting builds is great plus it unlocks over time so there's plenty to chase and go after each week the new location on Europa is absolutely beautiful it's covered with ice and is full of secrets there's plenty of lost sectors hidden loot chests and wide open spaces to explore there are new types of public events and even new enemy types with the fallen brigs and the Vex Wyverns, and Bungie has also introduced a dynamic weather system to the location too, so the wind picks up and the snow comes in, making it really hard to see. And the dynamic weather gives life and variety to the new location, and the only thing it lacks really is a landing point to the north. The place itself is huge, with Vex and Fallen being the main enemies on this location. There's a bunch of Braytech Exoscience buildings there, as this is the birthplace of the Exos, although more on the lore with Clovis Bray later on. Now, let's have a chat about loot. So there's been much talk in the build-up to Beyond Light due to sunsetting, with Bungie decided to implement a power cap system, so a whole bunch of weapons in the game cannot be infused or raise their power to the current levels, making essentially 50% of the weapons in the game irrelevant. This made a whole bunch of people mad, and for good reason, you know, we've been collecting this stuff for three years. However, Bungie promised this removal process was making way for new loot that would be introduced. Currently in the game though, there's about 35 to 40 weapons, and it seems much less than before. This is likely due to a resourcing issue, so we have the new Europa set, there's the Adept Trials weapons, plus the new Seasonal weapons, and the playlist specific drops for Strikes, Crucible and Gambit. There was a rapid outpouring of rage when the game was released, with many fans disappointed with the current levels of loot. Bungie did respond to this fairly quickly by adding in all the Season 10 and 11 weapons back into the game and acknowledged that things weren't as good as they could be. So as well as some of the weapons being sunset, four locations have been removed as well, as well as a bunch of legacy raids including Titan, Mercury, Mars and the ones on Io. So many of the changes here affect existing players, but another big criticism of the game in the past was been the way that they onboarded new players. So this is called New Light and it allows new players to get into the action straight away. New Light was initially introduced into the game 12 months ago with the DLC called Shadowkeep and it came in for a lot of criticism because you did a short quest and were then simply dropped into the tower, the central hub or home space in Destiny and players were just overwhelmed with quests, NPCs and icons and it was a confusing mess leading to many players simply bouncing out of that experience. Thankfully, the new light player experience has had a complete overhaul and a new character has been introduced called Shawhan and he walks you through the opening missions and you'll get introduced to all the characters in the tower in a less confusing manner, although it is still not without flaws. It does a good job of explaining controls, mechanics, exploration, destinations and systems to new players and hopefully this will help fewer players bounce from that initial experience. The beauty of Destiny can be found within the endgame, but it does take some investment to get there and that isn't immediately obvious from these player onboarding processes, so I can understand why so many players leave confused and frustrated, but break through that initial hard work and you'll be rewarded tenfold. So Beyond Light is full of secrets as you'd expect, for example there's a bunch of dead exos laying around Europa and you've got to find 9 of them in total for a reward later on. So we've got exotic weapons with some really powerful weapons, including the Lament, which is a chainsaw crossed with a sword, which is absolutely awesome, plus Cloud Strike, a new sniper that causes lightning to rain down on opponents on precision kills. There's even a bunch of penguin collectibles to find. So another huge plus in this expansion so far has been the lore. So this is the storytelling and the narrative weaved into the game. 
and Bungie has not always executed the story elements in the game well, but this is a massive improvement with the reintroduction of the Exo Stranger, Clovis Bray and also Anna Bray too. So here we've got many story elements coming together. The origin story of the Exos, a mega corporation called Clovis Bray, headed up by a man with the same name who thinks he's a god and wants to dabble in immortality. So here within Beyond Light we've got science fiction being told at the very highest level and it really makes me excited for the next 12 months and what we're going to see. So there's plenty to be happy with with Destiny 2 Beyond Light. There's also room for improvement too, primarily concerning loot. So so much content has been taken away with weapons, destinations, NPCs and lore and the game was just getting massive and it had to be trimmed from about approximately 150 gigabytes to about 70 and I would love to see more done with the old subclasses too. They instantly feel out of date and less powerful than the new stasis ability but I guess that is a good selling point for Bungie. Loot is the main concern at the moment and it'll be interesting to see what Bungie does in the long term. It's a tricky one to balance. So they want players to use the new weapons and armor as they come out because a lot of resources, time and effort goes into creating those. But personally, I am for sunsetting, but it's got to be done in the right way. And I think we're at that harshest moment right now where the loop feels like it's not all that. But from here on in, it's only going to get better. So next in at number two, and it's Ori and the Will of the Wisps. So Ori and the Will of the Wisps is simply one of the most beautiful games I've ever played full of fluid movement, big set pieces, furious action and heartfelt quiet moments that will amaze and delight you. This is the follow up to Ori and the Blind Forest from Moon Studios with big boots to fill after their superb first game. I can guarantee that those boots have definitely been filled. The colours and the world of Ori and the Will of the Wisps is vibrant, pops out the screen regularly throughout the game. This game levels up from the first in almost every way related to gameplay combat and puzzles and the vibrant world that you inhabit. There are times throughout the game where your jaw will drop with what you're seeing and the world around you is alive through the leaves on the trees and the animals that you interact with and the dangerous environment that's always out to get you. The story in Ori and the Will of the Wisps carries on from where we left off in the first game so Ori went on an adventure to save the forest and now life has settled down. Ori is raising a tiny owl left to her by Kuro a massive bird that spent much of the last game chasing Ori, and Ori's owl is having trouble learning to fly, and Ori offers the tiny owl a feather from Kuro to help him. After a beautiful cutscene where Ori and the owl take flight, both are caught in a huge storm caused by the corruption of the last game. It's back once again to cause Ori and the forest problems, and Ori and the owl are split during the storm, it's down to Ori to restore the forest once again and reunite with the owl. Due to the storm, Ori is left alone in a new part of the forest with new secrets and power-ups to find, as well as face old enemies. Old characters return in the game along with Ori, so the spirit tree is back once again, along with the incredible sound effects and the voice that drives the narrative forward in the game. There are some elements here that have been inspired from other Metroidvanias like Hollow Knight, so NPCs are dotted around the map, offering more story details but also tools to help you along your journey. Lupo, who helps you out with your maps, is there, as well as Moki, a group of furry little creatures that provide more details about the world around you. Twillin is the vendor who sells you various items like shards and stones that provide new skills and buffs. Side quests are more apparent in the Wellspring Glades this time, which provide extra secrets and narratives for you to explore along the way to finishing the main story. These extra characters and quests provide another layer that was perhaps missing in the first Ori game, 
and allows the player to have a deeper connection with the game world. Power-ups and finishing your skill tree is an important part of Ori and the Will of the Wisps, so new areas are going to be locked off to you without these skills, so finding the spirit tree and levelling up is your first priority. These skills and abilities drastically change the way Ori plays and traverses the environment, so the world is designed with these new skills in mind, with the forests, water and sand blocking your path. As well as the power-ups that can be gathered out there in the world, you can also head back to the village and buy new skills through vendors like Twillin. Skills bought at the village can feed into your combat options, and layers of complexity have been added to the combat controls in Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Whereas in the last game, you could probably get away with just button mashing through enemies, here more skill and timing is required. Multiple attacks in the air, lock-on attacks, double jumping, fireballs, they're all available at your disposal this time round, so Ori feels really fluid and free as you move through environments and attack your opponents. It's one of the best feeling games in terms of traversal through environments and chaining combinations together, second to perhaps only Spider-Man Mars Morales. This time around the platforming has been toned down and the combat and big set pieces have been brought into focus. There's huge boss fights, but rather than chasing the bosses through areas as we did in the Blind Forest, more traditional boss fights have been installed. There's a layer of complexity here that's been added with various systems, either through combat or developing Ori skills, which is probably going to divide Ori fans. Personally, I enjoyed the improvements, but it's unclear as to whether it's going to be a welcome evolution from the first game. The graphics and the audio in the game are another huge success from Moon Studios. The colourful, vibrant characters in the immense world has been created with care, and once again, we've got huge set pieces that are going to make you sit back and simply go wow. This is like a cartoon come to life, one that you can control and shape the story ahead of you. Performances at times can send the computer or console you're playing into overdrive, but thankfully many of the issues were found in the early release have been fixed with the day one patch. And if you get the chance to play this on Xbox Series X, then it's absolutely beautiful. So Ori and the Will of the Wisps is my number two, and it's also available on Xbox Game Pass, so if you're a subscriber to that service, then here is another amazing game to add to your game library. And we finally made it. It's time for the number one, and it's Hades. So Hades is tons of fun, right from the start. It may be because it's a game from developer Supergiant Games, and it's been in early access for a while now, or perhaps it's the influence of Greek mythology and the slick and sexy feel to the game. Hades has fast become a must-play game of 2020. If you're on the fence about it, then I recommend you download this immediately on the platform of your choice. First of all, Hades is a beautiful game. Before we get into the smooth gameplay and the excellent writing, I'm struck by the gorgeous veneer on this game. Played from a third-person, isometric perspective, you control Zagreus, making his way through Hades and conversing with ancient Greek gods like Zeus, Aphrodite and Athena. The environments they're detailed, packed with danger and beauty, and the puddles they shimmer and their jewels dotted around the place shine as you battle across the marble floor with blood-splattered walls. Hades is a roguelike brawler, pitting you literally against runs through hell, and as you make your way through a series of levels, you'll earn power-ups that aid your run each time. So ancient gods will pop up out of the blue, all seem to admire you and sympathise with you having to spend your time down there in Hades while they're living it up above. The objective of the game is to get through a run in one piece, but you have to use your wits and your skills because this isn't easy. One false move and you're toast. Roguelikes are often about mastery. As you make your way through runs, you'll get better with practice and repetition. 
and the game reminds me a lot of Dead Cells, not in the way it looks, as that is a 2D platformer, but in the way the game feels. It feels so good to hit, smash and dodge, it makes you want to go again. Just do one more run, even if it's midnight. You know, Supergiant have honed and crafted a game that just feels good to play, and layered on narrative elements that kept me coming back time and time again. As with many great feeling games, the controls are simple to pick up, but they do take time to master. There's an attack, a dash, a special, and cast moves in your toolbox, together with these fairly simple controls, you have a range of weapons that unlock over time. Zagreus starts out with a deceptively simple sword, and over time, as you collect keys, you can unlock a spear, a shield, and a bow and arrow. At first, I thought, how can a shield compare to a spear? But then you try the shield, and you just fall in love with it. The sword is fairly straightforward. You can run in there and whack things, then run away. The bow and arrow does exactly what you think it does, and gives you a good amount of range. And also on the special move, a rapid-fire multi-arrow, which will help you if you get surrounded. The spear's got good range but can also be thrown and it comes back on commands similar to a boomerang. And the shield is a kind of hybrid melee and range weapon which simply just has to be experienced. Believe me, unlock the shield as fast as you can, it's amazing. There's a range of enemies in the game that you can use your arsenal of weapons on. There's ghouls that teleport in and shoot at you from long range and huge melee enemies that slide towards you with little notice. The enemies attack from a variety of directions and means, so you have to keep an eye on every angle, otherwise there's going to be trouble. There's snakes, witches and all kinds of nasties ready to kill you in an instant. Hades is procedurally generated, so the game is infinitely different each time you play through. Hell itself is reconfigured each time you try to escape, meaning there's no particular route to learn or how to get out of hell, but it's more learning the attack patterns of enemies and learning how to use the skills you pick up along the way. As each run goes by, you get stronger and stronger as you get further through the levels. One false move and you're going to lose it all. It's not so bad losing it all though as you go back to the lavish house of Hades. Hades, your constantly disappointed father, he's got the hump and seems locked to his desk doing his paperwork. Nix and Dusa, the severed head of the famed Medusa, they're hanging out there too. And the more runs that you do, the more of the area opens up and the narrative moments happen too keeping you engaged and helping you soften the blow of that last failed run. In the House of Hades, you'll get crucial story material, but you'll also get to purchase items and upgrades, not only for you, but the house itself, helping you out in future runs. There's also a practice room where you can test out the weapons and unlock new ones with Skelly, your fragile training partner, always willing to take a beating for the team. Then it's back for another run, which is going to be much different from the last. Now sometimes you'll have an amazing run with a spear and then a very quick beating which will turn you onto another weapon. It's worth trying out all the weapons and you'll have the good and bad runs with them all. And there's a few random factors in each run, so you've got the gods with the prizes that you select once you've cleared out a room. So when you first start a random run, a god will welcome you and upgrade your abilities. Maybe you'll get the power of Zeus with the additional lightning skills on your special attacks, or perhaps it's Poseidon who'll grant you his powers. Each run is different and the combinations will be different too, making you more and more powerful as you go. The other random factor in the run is the item you choose at the end of each room. So once you finish up a room, you'll have a choice. Do you go left or right and which prize do you want? So these items combined with the power of the gods makes Hades infinitely replayable and very fun too. So combined with the way the game feels, Supergiant games have hit on something really special. Then there's the narrative, so as you make your way through the level, new narrative arcs will open up, 
I've heard of players going through hundreds of runs and not seeing the same story twice, which seems incredible, and the sheer amount of narrative in the game is staggering. It's all voice acted too, with charm and wit and humour, as well as the acted voice lines and a thousand lines of dialogue. There's a sexiness to the game through the artwork, the interactions and the feel. It's a polished package that drips and oozes with quality and one that you simply have to give a go. Supergiant games have a reputation for excellence from Bastion, Transistor and Pyre. Hades, though, seems to have taken that polish and quality to a new level. Perhaps it's the mixture of Greek mythology or the many months of early access. I don't know, you know. I remember sitting in the classroom, being fascinated by ancient Greece as a child, studying the myths and the stories of minotaurs and the river Styx. Later in life, I made my way to the Greek islands many times, and I've been up close and personal with the ancient ruins, and this game reminds me of those experiences. Hades is a polished package that's got a great feel, fast action, with wonderful dialogue and story, and it's also available on Nintendo Switch, so if you happen to be on a train, then you can play it at your convenience. So that is it for my rundown of the top games of 2020. There's plenty in here that I would have loved to include, given the time, Ghosts of Tsushima, Demon Souls, Cyberpunk 2077 and Genshin Impact to name a few that I've played but not enough to count towards my personal game of the year. Now 2020 it's been a tough one but in terms of games we've had a lot of great titles added to our roster this year. Now I'm definitely looking forward to 2021 to see what more games are out there. Well that is it for this week's episode and if you want to get involved in the show get in contact through patreon.com forward slash this week in video games or check out the latest on the website send in your questions your comments and your video game stories i'm always interested in hearing from you i'm also available on twitter facebook youtube and instagram so search this week in video games on your favorite platform and join in that conversation so thank you so much for listening and for more this week in video games content like this subscribe and share with a friend to join our community check out the discord link in the description you can follow me on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing it would really help me out. Otherwise, check out the other podcasts in the feed. Thanks again. I'll see you soon and have a great start to 2021.